0: Well, today we start a new series on Zechariah. Uh, I've never preached on Zechariah before. I've been in ministry for 23 years and I've never preached on Zechariah. So there you go. But I'm also guessing that you probably have never heard a sermon series on Zechariah. So we're the the same. Uh, To be honest, I've been a a bit scared, I think, to preach on it. Parts of it are strange and difficult to understand. Uh, Zechariah was a prophet. Uh, who had visions or dreams that he didn't understand. (laughs) Which means that they're even harder for us to understand two and a half thousand years later on the other side of the world. After these opening verses, let me just say it gets weird. Uh, We meet angels riding horses uh, and driving chariots. Uh, We meet a giant measuring tape that stretches across Jerusalem. Uh, We meet a golden lampstand that gets filled with oil from two olive trees that are connected to it by long channels. It's like a big uh, irrigation system. Uh, We meet a giant flying scroll that removes sin from the whole land. Uh, And we also meet a woman in a basket who gets carried away by two other women who have wings and are flying. Now, it's tempting to just uh, quickly turn the page and move on to something that's easier to understand. So why should we study Zechariah? Well, firstly, because all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.16 says. All of the Bible is given by God and shows us how to live as Christians. (laughs) Even the bits that are difficult to understand or don't seem especially relevant like Zechariah. Uh, But but more than that, we study Zechariah because it teaches us about Jesus. That's what Jesus himself thought. Luke 24.27 describes Jesus after his resurrection meeting with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and this is what it says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Which might seem strange to you since Jesus isn't born until 400 years after the last book of the Old Testament is written. 400 years. But the Old Testament is about Jesus, including the prophets, including uh, Zechariah Zechariah especially, Zechariah predicts and looks forward to Jesus. Uh, Which is why the New Testament writers quote or reference Zechariah more than 60 times. No other Old Testament book of its small size has as many New Testament connections as Zechariah. And even more specifically, Zechariah gives us accurate descriptions about the last week of Jesus' life, his entrance into Jerusalem, his arrest and his death. So Zechariah predicts Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, chapter 9, verse 9. It predicts Jesus being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's in chapter 11. It predicts Jesus being pierced and the crowd looking on and mourning, chapter 12. It predicts Jesus the shepherd being struck and his sheep, his, uh, the disciples, being scattered, chapter 13. Uh, and so there are, those are some of the reasons why we'll be studying Zechariah. So let's jump in. Verse 1 sets the scene. Follow along in the, the, uh, the outline in the, the bulletin. There's uh, The Bible passage is there and then some place for you to take some notes. Uh, Verse 1 sets the scene for us. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Now, Darius, he was a king of Persia. Now, that may seem a strange way to you to date a Jewish book, but that's because there was no Jewish king. We're picking up the story of Israel after a particularly difficult time. Uh, Babylon had defeated it's going to be a bit hard to read, but anyway. Uh, uh, Babylon had defeated Israel, had started sending people into exile in 605 BC. Uh, we read about that at the start of the book of Daniel. Daniel is one of the first who's carried away to Babylon. Uh, then finally, in 586 BC, Jerusalem has been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of the Jews are uh, uh, sent into exile in Babylon. God had promised that that's what would happen if they kept ignoring him and disobeying him and worshipping idols. But he'd also promised through the prophet Jeremiah that after 70 years he would restore them and bring them home. And that's what happened. Uh, 536 BC, King Cyrus of Persia defeats Babylon and he allows the Jews to return to Judah and start rebuilding their temple. We learn about that in the first part of the book of Ezra. Now, this is where Zechariah takes up his story. Uh, King Darius is Cyrus's grandson. Uh, and the second year of his reign is 520 BC. So at 538, they start arriving back. Remember BC? It's like negative numbers. It, it, uh, the numbers get smaller as you get further along. Uh, 520 BC is nearly 20 years after the first Jews have returned. So that's where we are. This is the the, the first year of of King Darius. Uh, Sorry, the second year of King Darius. Uh, And that's when the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Zechariah. And God has a message for his people. Look at verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers... Now that's 700 years of history summed up in one sentence. From the day they entered the promised land, God's people had been sinning against him. And God was angry with them, but he was very patient with them. And it had all ended with the temple being destroyed and God sending them to Babylon. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. But now the people have come back and the question is, Has anything changed? Have they learned anything? They've come home to Jerusalem, but have they come home to God? Because that's not quite so clear. Look at verse 3. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? God has a history lesson for his people. He says, think about what happened to your ancestors. They were exiled because of their disobedience. And where did they end up? How did things turn out for them? Well, the answer to that question, where are they now? Well, it's either they're in Babylon or they're in the ground. They're dead or else both. They're in Babylon and dead. But either way, that's what happens when you disobey God. God's warnings, there's an interesting word there, overtook them. It says at the start of verse 6 or God's warnings caught up with them or overwhelmed them, something like that. And so Zechariah's message is, learn from them. Don't be like your forefathers. Return to God. Now that message must have been a bit puzzling to Zechariah's hearers. Return to God. After all, hadn't they returned 20 years ago? Weren't they home already? Well, the prophet's answer is clear, no, you're not. You're not home, because there's a difference between returning to Jerusalem and returning to Yahweh, to God. They may be living in the land, but they were living apart from God. And that issue couldn't be fixed simply by changing your address. Coming home to God can only happen when we start to listen to God again. They thought they were safe because they were in the land. They thought that location was what mattered. But God says that relationship is much more important than location. Now, this is where it's good to know that Zechariah's generation, they weren't particularly bad. It doesn't seem like they were particularly bad. They weren't idolaters, They weren't worshipping idols. The exile seems to have cured them of that. They weren't sexually immoral. Their sin, well, they were just a bit indifferent. God had reconfigured, changed the entire political landscape of the ancient Near East to get them back to Jerusalem to restore his name and his reputation and his temple. And they were doing nothing about it. Their sin, what they needed to repent of, isn't so much what they did as what they didn't do. It was a sin of omission. The book of Haggai uh, one of Zechariah's contemporary prophets, it's the, the book immediately before this one, and you read the first verse of each, and they're within a month of each other. <laughs> Second year of Darius, I think it's the sixth month and the fifth month or something like that. Uh, Hagar, he said he talked about how the people had returned to the land, but then they'd got preoccupied, that they'd got busy with the other things in their life they got busy with the details of life, of re-establishing society and business and food supply and housing. Haggai chapter 1 verse 9 explains why life was proving so difficult. "'Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, "'so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. "'You expected much, but see, it's turned out to be little. "'What you brought home I blew away.' Why?" declares the Lord Almighty, "Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. God demands that he be top priority. Number one, God demands that there be no gods before him. Which for the Jews meant they needed to build the temple, leave their homes unfinished so that the temple, God's house, could be finished. That was the reason their life was a mess because they weren't putting God first. Could that be the word of the Lord for us today? To you and me at this moment in Sydney. Neither our church or the Presbyterian denomination or the the wider Christian church in our city, we're not particularly rotten with immorality or idolatry. But I think you could say we're pretty comfortable. Lukewarm. Lacking passion. Lacking courage. Lacking risk-taking. Is it as simple as that we're not putting God first. We think church is important, but not as important as my kids' sport. The Bible is important, but not as important as catching up on my social media. Financial giving to the church is important, but not as important as building my superannuation or saving for my overseas holiday hospitality is important but not as important as going out to that new restaurant with the great reviews prayer is important but not as important as texting my friends jesus pleasing jesus is important but not as important as pleasing my boss uh, the sin of being lukewarm <laughs> the sin of omission, what we're not doing. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. Well, what did the people do? Well, look at what their forefathers did. And I've actually changed my mind since Thursday. But this was at our home group on Thursday night. I think the second part of verse 6, it says, then they repented. And the question is, well, is he continuing describing the forefathers or does he tell what Zechariah's hearers did in response to that message. I think he's continuing to describe the forefathers. While they were in exile, they repented. They learned their lesson. Verse 6b says, Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. When God spoke to the forefathers, they listened. They turned from their wrong ways and their wrong practices. That was exactly what God had warned them about in verse 4. While they're in exile, they recognise that they've done the wrong thing and that God was just. They deserved it. So it seems like they returned to God and he had returned to them. But would Zechariah's hearers do the same thing? Now, I think at this point, we don't know the answer. Uh, You'll have to come back next week and the weeks that follow to find out. There's a good reason to come back. Uh, But the challenge for Zechariah's hearers is it's the same challenge for us. Zechariah calls for us to learn from our ancestors too. That message to return to God, to repent, is one that every generation needs to hear again and again. If you flip over a few pages in your Bible from Zechariah through Malachi into the book of Matthew, you'd actually jump forward 500 years. Uh, but you come to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 and listen to what his message was. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent for the kingdom of God is near. And then not long after John the Baptist, Jesus appeared and his message sounds pretty similar. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then after Jesus was raised and returned to heaven, he sends the apostles out to preach. Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' ascension, and listen to their message. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But not just the Jews. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 is speaking to the people of Athens, to the non-Jews. And what does he say? Verse 29 of Acts 17 We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. All people everywhere, whatever your culture or language or people group, Whatever time you are at in history, we all have to recognise that we have lived life ignoring God. We have walked away from him. We have not put him first. And we must turn back to him. People everywhere need to admit their sin, repent and decide to put him first, to obey him, follow him and his son Jesus. But maybe you're thinking that doesn't apply to you. After all, you've been in church all your life. Where you're sitting is where you've sat every, every Sunday for the last 30 years. <laughs> you made a decision to follow Jesus years ago. But repenting isn't just something that other people do. And it's not just something that people do once. The people... Think about the people of Zechariah's time. They thought they were safe because of where they were, because they were in the land. But remember, location is no substitute for relationship. Just because you've sat in that pew, it doesn't mean you're safe. They thought they were safe because of their nationality, their heritage. But family connections are no substitute for relationship. Each individual... Person needs to return to God. Being in church is no substitute for genuinely knowing God. And we don't just do this once. When God forgives your sin because of Jesus' death in your place, we are born again. We belong to Him, and the Bible promises that nothing can separate us from His love. It promises us that no one can snatch us out of Jesus' hand. And that is a wonderful truth. It is a a reason to praise God. It's a reason to be confident in life and as we face death. That is all true. But it doesn't mean we stop sinning. Christians continue to sin. We may look pretty good in our actions, in what other people can see, But what about the things that you do that you think no one else sees? God sees everything. But it's not just not doing bad things. Think of all the good things that you fail to do. All the opportunities that you have to to be generous, kind, considerate, loving, compassionate. And you just can't be bothered. The times when you deliberately choose to do nothing rather than doing good. That's sin. And that's just our actions. What about our thoughts? Our motives? What about lust and anger and pride? Frustration? Impatience. And even the good things that we do are stained by sinful motives. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't even meet our own standards for a good life, let alone God's standard. Most of us who've been Christians for decades will tell you that the more we live the Christian life, the more we realise how far we still have to go to be like Christ. Because God's Holy Spirit continues to shine his pure searchlight into every corner of our lives, doesn't he? And he continues to reveal another area that we need him to clean up. Every day we need to return to God. We need to recognise our sin and our need for Jesus. What a wonderful experience that is though when we return to God. Uh, We may recognise the the blackness of our own heart but when we hand it over to God uh, when we when we know that Jesus welcomes us, whatever we've done, that's wonderful. Remember the wonderful promises of Jesus? Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light when we return to God his wonderful promise is that he will return to us I suspect the Apostle James had this very passage in mind when he writes these words in his letter in James chapter 4 and I'll finish with these words today come near to God and he will come near to you Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you could have just left us in our sin. Uh, But you spoke. Uh, You warned. You called. You called us to return to you. Uh, Lord, wherever we are at, however long we've been a Christian, whether we're not yet a Christian, whether we've been a Christian for 50 plus years, uh, humble us, show us our sin and our need to repent Fill us with the forgiveness or the joy of the forgiveness that you promise us in Jesus. Remove our burden. Give us rest. Amen.